Hi, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Guino. This podcast is where I interview people in healing professions about the intersectional journey of healing self while taking care of others. And I really value the connection that I have with you, my listeners. So I wanted to invite you to connect with me in a couple of ways. So first of all, if you feel so inclined to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcast, that's really, really helpful. You can find me on Instagram at Head Heart Therapy, and Instagram is probably my fave platform, so please feel free to connect with me on there. And on Facebook, you can find us at Head Heart Therapy and at Wounded Healer, and that's Wounded Healer, W-O-U-N-D-E-D-H-E-A-L-R. And I wanted to share something exciting with you, that this episode is actually sponsored by the Creative Imposter Studios. Andrea's podcast team has been supporting this show from the very beginning, from launch to ongoing editing and consulting services, and I truly cannot recommend her and her team highly enough. So Andrea is now offering her popular Launch Your Podcast class via Zoom, Thursday, July 9th at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. In this class, you'll find out what it takes to extend your reach, build community, and use your voice to change the status quo with podcasting. Andrea will give you a behind-the-scenes look and share five tips to help you sound like a pro from the start. The first 15 people to sign up by July 2nd will get in free. Register at thecreativeimposterstudios.com slash healer launch. So this is actually how I ended up starting this podcast, was going to this class with Andrea. So if you have been thinking about that podcast, now is the time. And now let me share with you about today's guest, Britton Holmberg. It's funny to call him Britton because I've only known him as Brit, but his full name is Britton. Britt and I actually went to grad school together, and I've gotten a chance to work with him and learn from him, especially in regards to anti-racism. And I just want to note that we recorded this prior to the, the murder of George Floyd and all of the protests that have been uh, springing up since then, but wanted to air this conversation now as it's so incredibly relevant. So let me tell you more about Brit. Brit goes by he, him, and they, them pronouns. And he is a passionate community organizer, educator, and mental health practitioner who seeks to disrupt white supremacy culture and promote anti-racism at both the clinical and organizational levels. Brit lives with his family in Chicago, Illinois. So I'm really excited to share this conversation with you, and I hope you enjoy Brit Holmberg. Hey, Britt. Welcome to Conversations with the Wounded Healer. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. So glad to be with you. Yeah, I'm really glad to do this, too. Well, let's start by talking about how we met. Yes, we met in grad school. We met in grad school. Go Loyola. Go Ramblers. Oh, yeah. They have a sports team. That's not a <laughs> thing I think about. <laughs> what class was it? I don't remember. Was it Alan Levy's class? Dr. Yes. Levy? I remember feeling like I finally understood personality disorders after that class. Mm -hmm. I remember understanding like I finally realized what I was getting myself into after that class. Really? Yeah. I mean, he was, I felt like he was just one of the most practical professors and most yeah. kind of honest and authentic people that we had there. And Agreed. he just kind of like talked really honestly about what it's like to do therapy and to work with people with chronic mental health issues and just to kind of sit with that. So I still think about that class. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now that you say that, I think I remember too being terrified on some level. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. But it's that idea of like, 
oh shit, this is this is what we're doing. Okay, all right. This is scary. <laughs> yeah, I remember he would say things and we'd kind of look at each other like, is he allowed to say that in class? Like, that's sort of provocative or what, what yeah. does he really mean by that? And stuff that now I would kind of not really bat an eye at. It's just like, yep, that kind of stuff happens. Just you never know when you get into a therapy room with someone what's going what's gonna to come up. So, Yeah, it's funny to also now be a professor and to think about, I know that there are some things that I say that my students are like, wait that's what happens in the real world. And I'm like, yes, I'm going to just tell you how it happens instead of having you experience something either terrifying or whatever it is and then think that you're doing something wrong. Like, no, this happens to all of us. Yeah, just normalize it and prepare people to just even start mm-hmm. thinking about it. Because it's one thing to talk about it in the classroom. It's another thing to then be in the moment and sitting across from another human being or human right. being. Well, we could keep talking about this, but I want to talk more about you. So you want to tell people who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. My name is Britt Holmberg, and I use he, him, they, them pronouns. I am a licensed clinical social worker. I also have a master's of divinity degree. I did a dual degree program with Loyola and Garrett Theological Seminary, graduated back in 2010. So I've been in the clinical field for about 10 years, and I've worked primarily in mental health. Although before I got to graduate school, I did a lot of food justice work. I worked at a food bank for a couple of years. I worked at a community center in Erie, Pennsylvania on their food program. So that's always sort of in the background, sort of a passion of mine. Mm. I went to graduate school because I realized there was a lot of like mental health issues that were coming up for the people I was working with and supporting. And I realized I just didn't have the skills to give them what it felt like they needed. And so... Graduate school for me was very formative in terms of kind of finding myself and Mm -hmm. really getting clear on sort of what my strengths are and how to kind of use them most effectively. And so I'm very grateful for that time. And then worked in a number of different kind of clinical settings since then. The hospital, Northwestern Hospital for several years, also in private practice for a few years. And now I'm currently at a college wellness center here in Chicago, working with students on a, on a short-term basis in terms of trying to support their mental health as they're working to get through school themselves. And then sort of my passion project, my side gig, if you will, is I created a training with a colleague of mine named Marion Malcolm, who's also a social worker, and it's called Becoming an Anti-Racist Social Worker. And we met at the hospital a number of years ago. She was actually my clinical supervisor and my first social work boss. And we just got to talking about this was like pre-Trump, pre kind Mm. of white supremacy being all over the place and even pre kind of Ferguson, pre Trevon Martin. But we just sort of realized after, I mean, not even in graduate school, but certainly after graduate school, there's very little attention given to how to kind of work against racism, how Mm -hmm. to challenge racism in clinical spaces, how to kind of apply the principles of racial justice and racial equity to clinical spaces. And so we kind of put our heads together and said, we love the clinical work, but there's something kind of missing. So how can we kind of infuse the clinical work with more of like a racial consciousness and a racial justice consciousness? So developed this training back in 2013. The first time we did it was at the Illinois State Social Work Conference. And oh, really? Wow. Yeah. We probably put 50 hours into like developing it. And it was an hour and a half presentation. And we just kind mm-hmm. of like ran through this thing. 
And all of a sudden, people started coming up to us and saying, like, oh, tell us more about this. What's this about? Like, would you do this for our organization? And we were like, wow, I think we're this You're was onto bad, something. We're onto something here. Yeah. This is exciting. So we have since probably presented at maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 times for CEUs at organizations, at agencies, mental health agencies around the city. We've done more conferences, that kind of stuff. So it's it's really kind of taken off. And people are just, I think, especially now that the age that we live in, very, very hungry for this um, yeah. because it's coming up more and more in these clinical spaces. Mm-hmm. And they're just sort of saying, how do we address this? How do we kind of support our clients of color who are facing this oppression on a daily basis? And how do we also work with our white clients who are also exposed to this and have also internalized racism and implicit bias and microaggressions and see that kind of playing out in their own lives in terms of like tendencies of white culture. So I wish that I had a platform to kind of do that full time in in many ways. But that's sort of what I do on my evenings and weekends. And don't you love that? Like what we do for fun as social workers is like, (laughs) you know, try to dismantle white supremacy, NBD. (laughs) Right, right. Just just a little weekend kind of warrior thing. Yeah. (laughs) I was like talking to a colleague the other day and I was like, oh, I'm listening to this amazing podcast at night as I'm doing dishes and stuff. It's called White Lies. It's about the Reverend James Reeb case. He was a Unitarian minister who was actually assaulted and killed down in Selma, Alabama, right oh, after wow. the, the Bloody Sunday on the, the Edmund Pettus Bridge. I'm looking it up right now so I can listen to. It's phenomenal. It's through NPR. It's these two white Southerners who kind of look into the case and they're like, this is a cold case, but we need to figure out who did this and what happened exactly. And they figure it out. And it's it's a little bit like serial in that yes. in the sense that it's kind of like, ooh, what's happening? It's what's true what's crime yeah. and anti-racism. And anti-racism. Sign me up. <laughs> yeah. But my colleague's like, that doesn't sound very relaxing. That's what you're doing at night. I was like, oh, it's amazing. Like, you really need to listen to this. This is this is good stuff. Yeah. That's so cool. Well, I'd love to, I definitely want to talk about all the anti-racism stuff. Let's first back up and talk about a little bit more details about why you decided to become a therapist. So I'm guessing that there's, you know, it wasn't just like, oh, I'm doing food justice and oh, one day, oh, yes, I'll be a therapist. But what led you to social justice? You know what? All of it. Yeah. So that's a long story. I think to sort of keep it relatively concise, I would say I think social justice for me was very much a part of my upbringing. I was involved with the United Methodists growing up, and that was always something that they talked about. And I would go to church and mm. we would talk about that. And so that was very much... We did much... not talk about that in my Methodist church. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. It was very much from a charity perspective. It was mm-hmm. not sort of like, okay, we need structural change. There are these structural mm. oppressions or systems going on. It was very divorced from history. It was just more like, we need to help people who are in need. So that's kind of how I approached it for many years. And then Mm -hmm. my eyes were really opened in college. I took some really great classes, some on racism and and some on just sort of community empowerment. And so that's really when I started Mm -hmm. getting the language of race and Mm -hmm. understanding more about sort of what's needed to not just like there's that saying, like you can feed a person for a day or you can teach them to fish. That's really when that sort of consciousness started deepening and has continued Mm -hmm. to sort of deepen. So I think that's where a lot of my social justice kind of foundations started and those values really began Hmm. to be cultivated. In terms of therapy, it wasn't really until graduate school that 
I started kind of thinking about, okay, well, what am I going to do on a day-to-day basis? Like what's really going to be fulfilling for me? Mm-hmm. And I had a really good friend named Scott Pryor, who's a musician and he was staying at our house and he said something about like, your home is a very healing environment. Like it's just mm-hmm. really, he was visiting from out of town and he said, it was just really meaningful to be here. Like you seem to have like a gift for healing. And this was sort of when mm-hmm. I was learning like, okay, well, what is this going to look like on a day-to-day basis? And yeah. that has always like st- stuck with me. And obviously I didn't really have a lot of skills at that point, but as I went into social work school, like that was sort of in the back of my mind. And that was when I actually got into therapy for myself, like personally, when first, I, time? first time when I wow. got into therapy. Well, I should say I've dealt with anxiety my entire life for kind of a variety of reasons. But in fourth grade, I did have a period of time where I was in sort of CBT therapy. So I learned mm-hmm. about many thoughts and irrational mm-hmm. thoughts. And that sort of, it was a bit of a bandaid. And I kind of continued to deal with anxiety all throughout the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And then in grad school, just with everything that comes up kind of personally, I really need to see someone, whether I was going to be a pastor or whether I was Mm -hmm. going to be kind of working in the clinical field, like I need to kind of figure this out for myself. And I started working with my therapist at that point, Carol Jennings, and she, she was like an angel for me. She, Mm -hmm. I ended up working with her on and off for seven years, I think. And worked through a lot of a lot of family stuff, a lot of personal stuff, a lot of my anxiety and just losses that I'd had even during that period of time. Mm. And it was her really providing that like safe, supportive, like healing space that really helped me to see like what a profound difference a therapist can make in one's life. Because up until that point, I thought, okay, well, I need to be in politics. We need to like start a revolution. We need to kind of really make some substantive change at a macro level. And I think as a white male, my programming is like, this is what white men do. They they get in charge and they try to fix things and they're leaders, right? Sitting with Carol week in and week out, she really helped me to see like, there are lots of ways to make change in people's lives and support change. And it was mm-hmm. very kind of grounding for me to sit with her. And so for my second year internship in graduate school, I requested like a clinical site and I got placed at an outpatient mental health clinic at a hospital. and. I just remember, I remember talking with my partner, she was like, you've never seen this grounded before doing work in terms of like your day in and day out work. And, mm, and I think, wow. you know, as I was continuing with my own therapy, yeah, it just, everything just sort of clicked into place. And I realized mm. that I don't have to like fix things in people's lives. I don't have to fix the world, but like sitting with someone is a way to create a lot of deep change in their lives and support yeah. them in that. I mean, they're the ones doing the change, but having someone who they can meet with and support, obviously, as you know, is a huge plus or like a huge sort of catalyst for that change. Yeah, I've had so many conversations recently that come back to just holding loving space for people as being the magic, you know, and yes, of course, we need to have skills and no interventions and that sort of stuff. But but really, our ability to sit there with someone And see them clearly. And I think seeing them clearly has to do with us doing our own work. Yeah, I would say when we were trying to have kids, we we do have kids now, we're very fortunate. But when we were trying to have kids, we actually had a, a few losses along the way in terms of pregnancies. And I think that being in therapy during that time, that lesson was just so key for me because there were times where I would just come in and weep. There were times where I would just, there were just no words to express the pain 
but it was just Carol sitting there and supporting me and we got through it. You know, I got through it and I'm so grateful. I, I wish, I wish there was a way that we could thank therapists after the fact that wasn't kind of, I don't know, just sort of awkward or I wish there was a way to like kind of, and I've, I have written her a letter as a yeah. thank you. I just think about her every now and then and I want to just thank her again because it's, it's like the gift that just keeps giving in my life. Like I keep, I'm just so grateful for that support that she provided me. And you know, because you're in the position now that I'm guessing that some of your clients feel that way about you and you know how, how meaningful that work was to her as well. As a therapist, we can't help but be affected and changed and evolve with our clients if if we're paying attention, right? right. <laughs> so I love when I hear from former clients. I love when they reach out. And I have folks who I worked with in treatment who now it's been seven years since I've been there. And so some of them send me an email every year on their sober anniversary and say, I'm still sober. And it's, you know, thanks to you. And of course, it's not thanks to me, but I got to be there at the beginning of their journey. And I love that so much. Mm. Yeah, I've heard from people over the years, but you're right. It's an interesting field because you can see the change and the growth while you're sitting fr- across from the person, but then they really are sort of out of your life in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And I have to find ways to kind of hold on to that and, and to mm-hmm. like take those sort of little victories because unlike other jobs, you don't really get that kind of feedback like after the fact. Not all the time. Not all the time, yeah. You have to kind of like find ways to kind of create that for yourself because there can be pretty pretty rough days too. Well, I'm guessing that doing the anti-racism work is part of how you, because at least for me, I think if we're not getting that feedback, which gives us the validation that we're doing something right, it feels like you're almost like in this nebulous void. But when I do presentations and I have people come up to me and say, oh my God, that was so impactful for me because X, Y, and Z, that's that like touch point of like, okay, someone is picking up what I'm putting down, right? And I'm guessing for you, that may fulfill the same need. Yeah, I think it does. And I think it also speaks to like that sort of what I was saying earlier, like that desire to kind of make macro change gives that a little bit of voice and a little bit of a a place to put that to. But yeah, that is sort of affirming to kind of hear. And it's feedback that I don't typically get in sessions or once people terminate that kind of stuff. And also to hear from just other, especially because it's oftentimes other clinicians or other people who are kind of out in the community doing this kind of work to know that they're appreciating this, that they're getting some value out of it. So it does, Mm -hmm. it does kind of fill that in a, in a way that I hadn't thought about. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that more. And I, I want to publicly thank you. So Britt and Marion did a presentation for Head Heart and it was so awesome. And I did not have the same education that you did prior to grad school. The race and ethnicity class was the first time I heard gender is a social construction and white privilege. Those were the first times I fucking heard those terms, which is mm. ludicrous that I could move through the world and not be exposed to that. So it's been, I feel like I'm way behind <laughs> on that journey. And since I've just essentially just discovered it over the past couple of years, I feel like there's been this need inside of me to want to fix it, right? Want to like do something drastic to create all this change. And in that presentation, I remember I was saying like, okay, like, how do I change my website? Like, how do I make it safer for people of color? How do I do this? And you were like, Sarah, I wonder if your gift is going to be helping other white people. Mm. And I was like, 
that's it, motherfucker. That's it. And and that relieved a lot of pressure and gave me permission to do what I know I can do well. Mm. Right. It's like challenge my people and speak to the shame that comes up as a result of not having this information. And one of the things I've gotten to do with this is I'm doing training in NARM, Neuroeffective Relational Model. And there was some stuff that came up around privilege and race. And so I offered, I was like, let's do a book group on white fragility. Mm-hmm. And so I am getting to do exactly what you said I could do. And so I just wanted to thank you for giving me that permission and inspiration. And it's just awesome. Yeah. Well, that's really exciting to hear. I'm glad to hear it. You're very welcome. I think, you know, oftentimes when we think about racism as white people, there is this tendency to think, okay, but someone else needs help. I need to fix something outside of me. And I think it's part of our training or our sort of programming as white people to think that racism is about other people or or about people of color. And really what it comes down to in a lot of ways is, is us sort of looking in the mirror and saying, okay, how am I a part of the problem? How am I wounded or affected by whiteness? And how have I been raised? How have I been kind of socialized to just accept the status quo and begin to kind of dig away at that and to ask those tough questions of colleagues, but certainly family members, parents, and you know other sort of organizations that we're involved in, just start asking those questions and then keep kind of that, that work moving Because we hear a lot of people, people will reach out to us and say, I'm not sure I really need your training. I'm not racist. And I say, yeah, yeah. I say, okay, are you anti-racist? Because there's Mm -hmm. a difference between being not racist racist, and anti-racist, right? There's a huge gap. And I think if you did a survey across the country, especially of white folks, 99% of them would say, I'm not racist. Because that's like a dirty word in our culture. But if you ask them, are they anti-racist, you'll get a very different kind of response. And I think that's why we kind of called it this. It's like there's one level of commitment in terms of saying you're not racist, right? You're saying, okay, this is not okay. Racism is bad. But it's a whole other level of commitment to sort of turn around on that people mover or get off it and say, like, I'm not riding this anymore. Like, this is not good for our culture. It's not good for our society. It's certainly not good for friends and colleagues of color or neighbors of color. And we need to, like, change this whole thing. And that's sort of that very intentional, proactive process of becoming anti-racist. And I think trying to make that distinction for people helps kind of open their eyes to what you're saying. Like, okay, there's some internal work here. There's some community work here that needs to be done. And it's not going to happen if I'm just sort of going along with the flow. And just for listeners' sake, could you define racism? Because I think that's part of the problem of saying, I'm not racist, because we're not defining racism correctly. Yeah, right. A lot of times when people think about the term racism, they think about these individual acts of hate or individual acts of racial slurs and that kind of stuff. that That is a very real and very pernicious form of racism or expression of racism. But when Mary and I talk about racism, and I think when many people are sort of naming racism in present day society, we're talking about this institutional level of racism that really is about like a system of power, a system of advantage, a system of privilege that very much kind of creates white people in our culture and lifts them up as being superior and people of color, Native Americans, indigenous people as inferior and sort of builds an entire society around that lie. 
and in terms of like institutions, mm-hmm. in terms of like housing and, and redlining and some of the, the practices from, you know, voting discrimination and, and poll taxes and this type of thing in terms of like really excluding an entire race or an entire group of people based on their ethnicity or their race or their language. And there's a whole history of this that I think when people, you talk to a lot of white people and they say, well, racism is over. We had Obama. You know, we need to kind of move beyond that. And if you talk to people of color, that is not at all what their experience is. In fact, we're sort of at a point where hate crimes are back reaching new highs every year. Yep. Yep. And you sort of open up the newspaper and there's always sort of mention of race and racism going on. And so really helping people differentiate between the individual level and the, the institutional level, because there's just incredible harm that's done at an institutional level or at a societal level that a lot of white folks are just blind to because we're not raised right. to see it. We're not right. raised to talk about it. There's the shame that comes up when we do. And that's ultimately what we try to do in these trainings and these workshops we do is just mm-hmm. kind of create a space where people can start to talk about their experience with race and racism in this country. And that alone is the beginning of the healing process because it kind of begins to sort of strip away some of that shame, especially if you're white, strip away some of that confusion, the guilt, that kind of thing that can really just keep us silent. Absolutely. And when people ask you, when white people ask you, like, what do I need to do? How do I educate myself? Where do you usually point them? Wow. It kind of depends on where they are in the process. We really try to frame it as a journey. We were very intentional about calling it becoming an anti-racist social worker. We didn't want people to think about it as like an endpoint or like a destination. We really wanted to think about it as a journey. And as a white person, I've been doing this work kind of on and off for the past 20 years. I very much see myself on a journey. This is not a place that I think I'll ever arrive fully at because racism in this country is just constantly sort of evolving and coming up in new ways. And it's right. I have blind spots, right? I'm more conscious of them than I used to be, but I still have blind spots and I still fall into these traps. And so it's like this constant sort of process that I think we can do some of it on our own. We also, I think, need to do it in community. One of the tendencies of white culture is isolation and feeling cut off. And that's where that shame, you know, very well with like in terms Mm -hmm. of the shame that comes up as a result of that. But when we can sort of overcome that shame and overcome the fear and really begin to have more authentic conversations about the reality of racism, then we actually can begin to heal. So for some people, I think it's reading a book, a book like White Fragility. For me, it was this book called Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria Mm -hmm, by mm -hmm. Beverly Daniel Tatum. She wrote that, you know, more than 20 years ago now. And that was the book that we read, Peggy McIntosh's Unpacking the Invisible White Knapsack, which back in the 90s was when I was in school was really groundbreaking. And now people are like, yes, white privilege happens. What are we doing about more of white supremacy culture and and kind of these tendencies? So I think oftentimes books can be helpful. There's another book that I read recently called Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness by Austin Channing Brown. And I really found that book really meaningful in the sense that she's an African-American woman who just talks about what it's like to be Black in the U.S. And I think she offers a lot of really helpful entry points for white folks, um, especially white professionals, 
white folks who are going to church and who are active in a spiritual community in terms of just thinking about how we center whiteness so much. Right. That's the norm. That's sort of the way in which that's every everything is sort of based off of that norm and that standard. And to be outside of that is to have a very different experience than to be someone who's who is centered and who sort of benefits from that centering. So that's a really helpful book. Some of these podcasts that have been coming out, there's one on NPR called Code Switch that I, I like to listen yeah, to a lot. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's run by people of color and it's they're always bringing up really interesting, they're talking about either new authors or new research or uh, mm. new movements that are going on. So doing reading is one thing and, and especially focusing on reading authors of color or researchers of color or clinicians of color is super important. So that you're not just kind of taking in more of the same, but you're really getting other people's perspectives. And then just really trying to engage with people face to face of other cultures, of other ethnicities, of other backgrounds, and just showing up in those spaces and being a minority. That was, for me, a huge way that I learned that I didn't have all the answers and that I didn't have to fix everything. I worked at a freedom school through the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond back when I was in college. This is an organization that does anti-racism trainings around the country, and they ran a freedom school where they broke the curriculum down for youth who were from the city, pretty much all black youth who lived in the city of New Orleans as a way to increase their consciousness around the system of racism that they were up against. Mm, wow. And yeah, it was really a powerful experience. But most of the summer, I was like kind of behind the scenes. I made tuna fish sandwiches. I would go out and I would clean up the tables after lunch. I would maybe drive the kids here and there or or meet them someplace. And I, at first I was like, I need to be doing something really meaningful. And why aren't I leading some of these workshops or something? And then I kind of realized over time, like, I don't need to do that. Like that was already being yeah. taken care of. Like the people of color who were leading that organization had that all under control and they just needed someone to kind of fill the gaps and, and provide support and help out here and there. And I worked really hard that summer, but part of it was just figuring out like listening being kind of like a supportive presence, running out and running an errand, like that was sort of what my place mm -hmm. was. And it was humbling in like a very helpful way. And people would call me in and kind of give me that feedback. And I, I finally like figured it out. So I think there's, there's lots of ways to sort of decenter whiteness and just to realize like how much we're missing out on as a result of racism because it's so oppressive, but just all of the resistance and all of the kind of reimagining that's going on by people who have been marginalized by the system as a way to say like, that system is, it's death, you know, it's, it's like, yeah. it's not, it's not a life-giving place for anyone to be, whether or not you're centered by it or not, and to sort of get outside of that and, and to get free from it. I love that you shared that story because I've been learning about internalized racial superiority and internalized racial oppression. And and I mean, that's a perfect example of, right, like you said before, I'm a white man, I'm supposed to take action, I'm supposed to be in front leading something. And the humility that it takes in order for you to be able to recognize, like, even though you're so committed to racial justice that you wanted to work in this organization, and yet you still have that blind spot in that time in your life. So that's it's just so awesome that you share that. And it leads, I think, nicely into the question of how you feel about the term healer as applied to what you do. Mm. Well, I, <laughs> thank you for, for saying that. I still have a long way to go in terms of this process, but I, I do feel like I've learned a lot and I'm grateful for that. 
healer. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms around this work because it's such, in some ways, even more so than like individual therapy. It's just, it's just such long term work. It's just to make change around this. Like we've done some consulting with organizations and we'll come in and we'll start working with them and then we'll hit some resistance. And mm-hmm. we originally thought, okay, we're going to have a contract for three or four months and then it ends up turning into seven or eight months. And even at that point, everything that sort of begins to come to light and gets uncovered, you know, all of a sudden we realize this is way beyond like the scope of what we even set mm. out to do and what we're kind of equipped to be able to do, right? Because it's, mm-hmm. you know, I'm thinking of an organization that we started working with that has a mental health wing to it. But as we continued working with them, we realized like that this sort of culture of whiteness and white supremacy was really spread throughout the entire organization, which Mm. was hundreds of people and sort of beyond the scope of mental health work. You know, that's just all to say that the healing is very slow. It's not predictable. It's certainly not linear. And sometimes I think at this point, it's about just raising that consciousness and helping people to move from saying, I'm not racist to, okay, tell me more about this anti-racism. What is, tell me what that looks mm-hmm. like. I want to think more about how to kind of push beyond just not being racist, because I can see that that's certainly harming others. And it's also really limiting me if they're a right. white person. And so tell me more about what does that look like? How can I do that for my colleagues? How can I kind of embody that more for the clients if I'm working in a clinical space? And just sort of getting people started on the process and trying to give them some tools and resources to really have these these difficult conversations and have them in a way that they can be causing less harm, you know, to colleagues, causing mm-hmm. less harm to clients, and hopefully moving in a, to a place where they are then creating more healing. I think maybe that's more what it is for me as I'm talking it through. It's more of a harm reduction kind of model at this point Mm. and doing motivational interviewing to try to encourage organizations and individuals to move a little bit further in terms of preparing for action and then taking action and then sustaining that action. Because it's, again, it's a process and you can very easily slide back into collusion with white supremacy, with this culture of whiteness that gets Mm -hmm. centered. And it's about kind of like really mindfully and authentically trying to navigate that. And, you know, sometimes it's important as a white person to stand up and to really vocalize and amplify the voices of people of color because society is, has been programmed not to listen to them. And sometimes it's more just about inviting those colleagues and, and clients to speak and to use their voice and to just try to create the space so that's possible. So I think at this point, I feel like it's a lot about harm reduction, which is a form of healing. It's a very Mm -hmm. important part of the stages of change or the process of healing. But we don't always get to see that point of actual health or wellness because it is, I think, we're dealing with, you know, this is starting back in 1492, right, with the invasion of indigenous peoples and communities and land and and then 1619 with the beginning of enslavement in this country and and Mm -hmm. all of the sort of atrocities that have occurred on this land that we live and we call the United States. So it's just this huge backstory and this huge kind of inertia that we're we're really trying to work actively against. And that's a really big stream to try to divert or to try to make any sort of headway on. So I think that that's, I guess, how I would answer the question. I wish I had a more... But you still didn't really answer the question of whether you are a healer. Yes, I, I'm sorry. I definitely see myself as a healer. I thought you were talking about <laughs> it more in the context of 
all the of racial it. justice work. All of it. Yeah. But I guess I just wanted, yeah, I, I wanted your perspective on if you're a healer. And so you say, yes. Yes, I am. I love it. There's something about saying that that is both very like validating and it's also, it feels like a very bold thing to say in a way mm -hmm. because yeah. it feels like some ego kind of wrapped up in that. Like, I feel like it's easier for someone else to call me a healer. Like this friend, it's like, okay, yeah, that feels right. Like you are sharing your experience of being in my home and sitting with me and that I'm happy to hear that's healing. To say that, to claim that is, it does feel very bold, but I do, I, I think I need to own that. And I do feel that me being able to support someone and, and sit with them and encourage mm -hmm. them, whether it's sort of in an individual clinical space or at one of these workshops, like that, that, that I think I do contribute to healing in the world. I hope I do. So I'm going to say yes. <laughs> I think most of the time when I ask this question of people that that is a, a common response is essentially, you know, the nature of it being about a relationship. How about the term wounded healer? How do you feel about that? Yes, I definitely, you know, like I was saying, I, I think that for me, being in therapy was a way to really kind of begin to work through the, the woundedness uh, that I've experienced in my life. And I think that I'm still on that journey. You know, I am in a committed relationship. I've been with my partner for almost 20 years, just realizing through that process, kind of how wounded I am, all of the wonderful mm. parts about being in a relationship, but also the vulnerability that comes up and the sort of higher level of accountability that emerges. Yes. Like I'm able to see, wow, like I'm like constantly struggling with not being defensive and not taking things personally and yeah. dealing with when she has other commitments, like how to kind of deal with that and not read into it and be like, I'm missing her. I'm not a priority or that kind of thing or, right. or just struggling. I've always really struggled with articulating my own needs, which is, I, mm. I think, something that a lot of people in this field do, like how to express them and try to meet them. So I've definitely healed some on this journey, but I definitely continue to feel woundedness. And I think a lot of it right now for me, I'm focused on is the way in which my own internalized racism and my own internalized sort of sexism has impacted my relationships, has impacted the way I see the world, has impacted me professionally, that kind of stuff. So I think in some ways it's moved from my own personal mental health to thinking a little bit more in terms of like how it's impacted the community and that kind of thing and, mm -hmm. and how we're all sort of wounded by that in various ways and it looks differently, but that that's kind of something that I'm really focused on right now is how to try to heal from that myself so I don't create more harm or I minimize the harm I'm creating and also how to try to support others in that process as a result of the work I'm doing. Do you know the Enneagram? I do. I've never taken like a workshop in it. I think I did one of the Pretty assessments. Pretty sure you're a nine. Am I? Okay. The way that you're describing like wanting to get in touch with how you feel and what you need, like that is so my husband and he's a nine. And okay. that's one of the hallmarks of it. And, you know, when you talk about like the showing up in relationship and how a lot of stuff gets activated, that's, that's one of the things that happens between us is I'm like, just fucking tell me yep. what you need and I will give it to you. <laughs> and it's so hard for to do it. It's so interesting. It is. That conversation sounds very familiar. When my partner <laughs> hears this, she will laugh and say, yes, that is exactly yes. what I tell you every week or every month. Like, just tell me what you need. I'll be happy to try to help you figure that out. So 
that definitely is how it, a lot of how it shows up for me. So very, yeah. very that's part of why I think doing this work is helpful for me is because I get to focus mm-hmm. on other people and I get to, I get to yep. talk to them about how to do that for them. And then I'm just like, okay, I need to do this for myself too. You know, I need to set right? boundaries. I need to take care of myself. So it helps. Yeah, I think for the people that I consider good therapists, I think that is one of the hallmarks of it is recognizing like, if I'm telling my clients this, I better be walking the walk instead of just talking the talk. And I've definitely recognized that in myself sometimes where I'm like, I'm preaching self-compassion for everyone. And then I'm here talking to myself like an asshole. Like, that's not okay. And I just this week, like recommitted myself to self-compassion because I heard myself saying things that I was like, you're out of alignment. You got to do this work for yourself again. Yeah. Yeah. It's an ongoing process. And I definitely think that's something like I know sort of the five or six or seven things that I really need to be doing to be in balance. And Mm -hmm. I'm able to articulate those in general and I'm able to meet those needs. But yeah, I know I definitely can relate to that feeling of sitting across from someone and saying something you're like, Try saying that to yourself, Britt. Like, yeah, I think you need to be taking your own advice here and making that a priority. Yeah. So how can people find you if they're interested in in hiring you for their organization or for a training? Yeah. So I think probably the easiest way is on LinkedIn, just looking up Britt Holmberg. I'm not a huge social media person, so that's kind of the main avenue for contacting me. I do have an email that's anti-racist social worker training at gmail.com. Marin and I are working on developing a website specifically for this. She does have sydneymalcolm.com as her website, and there's like a small blurb about becoming an anti-racist social worker on there, but there's not a whole lot of information. So you can certainly also go to sydneymalcolm.com and then sort of contact Marion and, you know, get the process started that way too. So either of us is like a really helpful entry point. I'm doing a training on mindfulness for University of Chicago in two months for their School of Social Administration up in Evanston. And it looks like we're going to do, we created a new training kind of based off of the original training called Racial Equity and Ethics. So it's a way to kind of take a lot of what we talk about in becoming an anti-racist social worker and think Mm -hmm. about it through an ethical lens to say like, This is ethics too, right? There's a lot of ethics involved with thinking about racial equity and the process of moving towards inclusion, the process of moving towards racial equity, because a lot of times people and organizations just want to rush to that. They want to say, like, we're going to hire a director of equity and that's going to solve all of our problems. And that is not the solution. Not that that can't help. But anything that we do as an organization, we have to kind of think about it through a lens of inclusivity and through a lens of equity and helping people think about what is that pro- what does that process look like? Because the process in a lot of ways is really some of the most important part of the, the work. And if you don't have people sitting around the table that are racially diverse and that they have sort of an equal voice or if you're not talking about power, then you're really not doing racial equity work or inclusion yeah. work. It's really all about looking at that. And so... Definitely check those out as potential like connection points as well. We'd be happy to see you there. Awesome. Well, this has just been great. You're just a wonderful human and I'm just so glad to know you. Thank you. Yeah, I feel very honored that you asked me to be a part of this and just really excited to talk about this work and to connect Mm -hmm. and to support the work you're doing. So thank you for all that you're doing too. Awesome. 
Thanks so much for listening today. Thank you so much to Britt. And you can find more information about him at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. And as always, thanks to the Creative Imposter Studios for editing and all the wonderful support that they give to Conversations with the Wounded Healer. Thanks to Liam O'Donnell for the album art and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.